A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where we gather to revel in wrong things. And it's actually a lot more fun than it sounds, right? I mean, it sounds vaguely subversive, (laughs) something that some rascal would do. But guess what? The fact that you are here indicates that uh, you are probably on the path to becoming a rascal. And let me explain what I mean by that, because I don't want people to think, well, is he calling me names? Are you saying that I'm something, something bad? A rascal is nothing more than an authentic character. There's actually an excellent book by Chris Brady by the title of Rascal. And it's uh, it's one of the coolest books I've ever read in that it's a call for people to stop trying to be like everybody else. Stop trying to follow the crowd. Stop trying to, you know, blend in and, and be safe and just be yourself. And if you look around you and you notice the people who really have impact on the world, it's the people who are okay with being themselves. But the, the price for this is you got to march to your own tune. You've got you to find out what it is that's yours and yours alone and then pursue that with all your heart. Oh, it's not so hard, is it? Well, actually, it's, it's uh, kind of tough. Or otherwise, everybody else would be doing it. But you don't see that so much these days. So I've got some great stuff to share with you in this hour. And, and it's going to be centered around the idea that you are part of something that you may not even have recognized. And it's something that, uh, I, I don't know when I first became aware of this. I'm thinking it may have been close to 20 years ago, maybe longer. But it's a thing called the remnant. I, I'll tell you what sparked this, this thought in my mind. Um, one of my dearest friends, one of the truest defenders of liberty that I know, he and I stay in touch a lot because we have a lot to talk about these days. And there's, there's just a ton of stuff happening that is disturbing to anybody who's paying attention. You know, I've got friends who've said, look, if you don't feel sick to your stomach, you're really not paying attention. And I think there's some truth to that. But yesterday I got a text from this friend saying, hey, have you ever heard of Albert J. Knox's essay called Isaiah's Job? And, and he says, mind blown. This is just incredible. This is, this is like personal mission. And I was very happy to tell him, hey, if you go back, every time I have had the opportunity to speak in public, at least for the last 10 years, maybe the last 15 years, I have referenced Albert J. Nock and his essay, Isaiah's Job. And the beautiful thing about that is, um, in a nutshell, what Albert J. Nock is talking about is something that I think some people are feeling. I was going to say a lot of people, but I don't know if it's a lot of people. I think it maybe is just some people. I suspect you may be one of those people. So let me pose this question to you. Um, just, you know, answer this in your heart. You don't have to shout out the answer if you're you know, driving along in the car. But do you feel almost a sense of calling to stand for what matters in your life? In other words, it's not just, yeah, you know, it's a good idea. And, you know, I think I should probably, you know, give a nod to it. Yes, this is good. I approve. But but to actively stand for what you believe, 
In fact, let me take it one step further. This is going to push some people right to the point of discomfort, but here we go. Do you get a sense that maybe God has something in store for you? It's yours alone. It's, it's, it's a unique way to impact the world that only you can do, with the caveat, with God's help. And if your answer is even, well, maybe, or I've kind of thought that, or, I, I, or if it's a definite, yeah, absolutely, I feel that. Then I want to recommend Albert J. Knox's essay, Isaiah's Job. It's something you should read sooner than later. I'm going to get to the essay in just a moment, but I want to set the stage by first exploring the difference between a disciple, a follower, and a cheerleader. If you're going to stand for something in your life, you know, you should probably know the difference between these categories and how they, how they contribute to the structure of a movement. Now, Dr. Gary North wrote about this clear back in 2004. And this is his explanation. He says, in every movement, we find these three classes of adherents, disciples, followers, and cheerleaders. And it's not always clear in the early stages of a movement which adherent belongs in which category. So let's start with the disciple. Gary North says a disciple is an early convert. He decides that a master teacher has something to say that's both unique and important, so important that the disciple publicly abandons his commitment to the status quo. He establishes a personal relationship with the master. At this early stage, the master must be careful in the selection of disciples from the pool of enthusiastic candidates. The more attractive he is or the more attractive his doctrine, the more people he will attract. The character and commitment of the would-be disciples are not tested. And he reminds us, you know, out of the twelve disciples, uh, Jesus did attract a ringer. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him? Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Okay, good lesson there. Ludwig von Mises had two sets of disciples in his career. The first came to him in the aftermath of World War I, when socialism was attracting the best and brightest of a generation. Mises' challenge to the economists and the intellectuals of his day was comprehensive. In Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth, published back in 1920, and in Socialism, published in 1922, he threw down the gauntlet to socialists everywhere. Socialism is economically irrational, he argued, because it abolishes private property and therefore abolishes capital markets. Men cannot know what any resource is worth without free markets to inform them, and they cannot know what the most valuable use is for any scarce resource. Well, a group of very intelligent young men switched to their allegiance their allegiance, rather, from socialism, and they identified with Mises. Now, some of these names you'll recognize. Maybe some you won't, but they included F.A. Hayek. Ever read The Road to Serfdom? Wilhelm Ropke, Fritz Malchup, Machlup, rather, uh, Gottfried Hobler, 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 and Lionel Robbins. We're talking Europe, right? You can tell because I'm having trouble with the names. These all adopted Mises' views back in the 1920s, and they also established personal relationships with him. And in the 1930s, as a result of a prolonged worldwide depression, all but Hayek and Ropke switched the allegiance again, this time to the mixed economy. We're talking about the one articulated by John Maynard Keynes. 
Hayek had attracted his own followers in the early 1930s. John Hicks, G.L.S. Shackle, Kenneth Boulding, Nicholas Cador, and Abba Lerner all switched to Keynes and away from Austrian economics. Now, Mises' second group of disciples assembled in the post-World War II period when Mises was living in New York City. His evening seminar at New York University was the equivalent of his by-invitation-only seminar in Vienna. And among his disciples were four Ph.D. students, George Reisman, Israel Kirzner, Louis Sperato, and Hans Senholtz. Then there were Bettina Bien, her future husband, Percy Greaves, and Rothbard. Yes, Murray Rothbard. Henry Hazlitt was at the time one of the most influential disciples. At a distance, 25 miles up the Hudson River, were the senior staff members of the Foundation for Economic Education. Now, the point here is this. What he's trying to tell us is disciples go out and recruit more people. Some of these recruits become disciples of the disciples. They recruit followers. Now, I know a lot of names have been dropped here, and there's a good chance that you're not familiar with very many of them. But look at the pattern. And this is, this is the key. When it comes to being a disciple, it's usually not, uh, this is not the pathway to a life of ease and fame and recognition and accolades. Typically, disciples have to give up something. I mean, look, the, the root word for discipline, disciple, there's, there's, uh, there's sacrifice involved. But I think the most important takeaway about what it takes to be a disciple is you have to be willing to be called away from the status quo. You have to be willing to walk away from the status quo. And there just aren't that many people today who are in a position mentally, maybe sometimes financially, where they can do that. Now, when we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit about followers. These are the people who don't really have direct contact with the founder. They're attracted by the founder's books or other written materials. Maybe they're attracted by one of the disciples, but they remain at a distance and they do their best to think through the principles of the founder. In other words, they start to view the world through his glasses. And there's nothing wrong with being a follower, so don't don't take that as a pejorative. But we'll get to the cheerleaders eventually, and we might get a little pejorative when it comes to describing them. By the way, there is a link to all of the stuff I'm talking about here, including Albert Knox's essay, Isaiah's Job, in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You might want to check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Sorry, I had to throw that last part in there because uh, we—I uh, never know. This this uh, this program could could be heard almost anywhere. I was looking actually at uh, at some of the different places where uh, where the podcast version of this is is listened to, and I'm happy to tell you, you know, 95 percent of my audience is right here in the good old USA. Five percent of my audience is spread throughout the world, and we're talking through about I think uh, three, maybe four dozen different countries. But this one sort of blew my mind. 
1% of that 5% of my listening audience, uh, podcast listening audience, outside of uh, the U.S. is in Brazil. I mean, look, I was a big fan of Sergio Mendes, but I, just, I don't know. I'm, I'm really not, uh, not sure what that means. So I've been sharing with you this uh, disciples, followers, and cheerleaders concept. This is something Dr. Gary North wrote about clear back in 2004. You understand disciples challenge the status quo. They, uh, they are actually a founder or a, someone who has something very innovative, challenges the status quo. The disciples turn their back on the status quo. I think the Bible, it went something like, and they straightaway left their nets and followed him when Christ called his disciples, okay? But then there come followers. And what the followers do is they extend the founder's message to the world at large. They write or they teach. Maybe they just read and apply what they've read to their immediate circumstances. But their goal is to extend the founder's innovative vision of the world to those around them by word and deed. Now, followers receive little applause, but that doesn't bother the ones who are truly dedicated because they're not really after applause. They might get opposition, but that also doesn't bother the hardcore. In fact, they expect opposition. So they go about their business day by day, and if anyone asks them why they do things differently, they provide an answer. If you remember, Peter, a disciple of Jesus, told, told his readers, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That last part, by the way, is important. It's not chest beating. It's not uh, braggadocio. It's just you're humbly taking that message out there. The follower understands this principle, says Gary North. He hands out articles. He suggests web links. These are the people who were described by Albert J. Nock in his uh, 1936 essay, Isaiah's Job. They're attracted to the master or the prophet. They like his message. Somehow they hear the ideas of the master and they come one by one to read the writings of the master, but they don't join anything openly. They do not think of themselves as organizers or even as part of an organized movement. They internalize the message and they begin to apply it. Now, a cheerleader. All right, let's, let's get to the cheerleader. A cheerleader seeks attention. A cheerleader wants to be seen. It's not clear to him or anyone else why he should be seen. His means of gaining attention is to attach himself to a team. He wants to be on the winning side. He wants to be seen on the winning side. And cheerleading is an American institution. Now, it serves no useful purpose, but it's always there at high school and college football and basketball games. Where there's a large crowd to see the team, there will be cheerleaders. With sports where there is no crowd, there are no cheerleaders. And cheerleaders pretend that they control the crowd. The crowd pretends that their organized cheers in some way help their team or thwart the opposing team. They stand, they sit, they cheer in an organized way. They do what the head cheerleader tells them to do. But these efforts have no effect. The team pays no attention. The outcome of the game is not influenced by organized cheers. This is Bula Bula in action. It's a system of pretense, layers of pretense. The cheerleader thinks of himself as part of the team effort, but he isn't. The individuals in the crowd think of themselves as part of the team effort. They aren't. When cheering really matters, there is no organized direction. Individuals get excited by something on the field and they cheer. And this unorganized noise may actually have an effect on the team, but that which is organized doesn't. In fact, cheerleaders want to bask in the glory of the team. They want to think that the public recognition accorded to team members will be accorded to them as part of the team. 
but a cheerleader is easily replaceable. If he's replaced, there will be no perceived difference in the actions of the crowd or the team. And, of course, no cheerleader wants to admit this. The cheerleader is part of the game's environment. He doesn't make the team, but he doesn't want to be part of the team. He doesn't have the talent to make the team. Above all, he does not want to be part of the crowd. The office of cheerleader exists for the sake of cheerleaders. It has no useful function other than this. Gary North says it's for public amusement and personal ego gratification. Now, occasionally, cheerleaders do acrobatic stunts, and they deserve recognition for this. But remember, these skills have nothing to do with the outcome of the game. The cheerleaders are there for the amusement of attendees when nothing important is happening in the game. For those who are paying close attention to the game, cheerleaders are a a distraction. And his point here is that in every ideological movement, there are cheerleaders. They want to be part of the disciples, but they're not sufficiently gifted or committed. Or maybe they showed up late. Access is closed to them. And they don't want to be part of the crowd because it's not enough for them to be followers, grubbing out a daily existence in terms of the founder's precepts. They want to be seen by all as almost a team member, almost important to the cause. They see the conflict of visions as a game, and what they fear most is rejection. They fear rejection by the captain of of the team. Rejection would expose them as peripheral to the outcome of the game. They don't want to be peripheral to the game but they cannot get on the field. Besides, those opposing linemen are bruisers. Pretty interesting distinction, right? So the conclusion Gary North comes to is followers need disciples to extend their vision. Founders, rather, need (laughs) disciples. Sorry, bad eyes here. Uh, Disciples need to recruit more disciples, and they also need followers who will cheer them on when the going gets tough or when victory is in sight. There is therefore a role for the person in the stands who knows which team he is cheering for. At key times, his cheering may actually help the team when combined with unorganized cheering of those in the stands on his side of the field. Movements need committed followers. But Gary North says, as far as I can determine, nobody needs cheerleaders. I mean, it's nice to win the big game, but Bula Bula has nothing to do with the victory. Neither does Sis Boomba. (laughs) So I don't know where where you might find yourself. But that's, uh, that's an interesting way to look at how movements are structured. And if you are one of those brave souls who feels that sense of calling to extricate yourself from any of the mass psychoses that grip so much of our society, you are likely a part of what is referred to as the remnant. And this is where it really starts to get interesting. I highly recommend Albert J. Knox's essay, Isaiah's Job. That's one that you ought to read. And, and I want to just give a very brief explanation. Actually, I'll probably have to do this in the next segment. But when Albert J. Nock wrote Isaiah's Job, to set the stage for it, he had been visiting with a European acquaintance who expanded some political economic doctrine which seemed as sound as a nut. In fact, Albert Nock said, I couldn't find any defect in it. But at the end, his friend told him, I have a mission to the masses. I feel that I am called to get the ear of the people. I shall devote the rest of my life to spreading my doctrine far and wide among the population. What do you think? And Albert Nock had some tough love for his friend. It wasn't that he had a bad message, remember? He said, I couldn't find anything wrong with it. But he told him, if you are trying to take that message to the masses you should probably rethink what you're trying to do because the masses, when given a choice, 
more often than not, will say, free Barabbas, right? In other words, the masses really don't want to hear what you have to say. Now, that's the bad news, right? Because the masses are more consumed with really transitory things. They want accolades. They want pats on the back. They want someone to tell them how great they are. They want checks with their name on them, as Tom Woods says. But there is a group out there that really wants to hear that message. That group is the remnant. That's the group for whom truth matters more than almost anything else. We're going to talk about them when we come back after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program is brought to you in part by Patriot Home Mortgage, specifically the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And you can call 435-703-4522. Bottom line, you uh, say, let's say that you're moving to Utah. You're moving to southern Utah. You found the home of your dreams. Let the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage quickly get you the loan you need at the best rates possible. They've got the experience. They've got the clout to make it happen. And uh, you need to do it without delay because that is one competitive housing market out there. Well, let's talk a little bit about Albert J. Nock and Isaiah's job. So Albert Nock was approached by a friend who said, I have a message, I have a mission to the masses, I am going to go out there and get the ear of the people. I shall devote the rest of my life to spreading my doctrine far and wide among the population. And Albert Nock, as he thought about what his friend was doing, said, you know, maybe you should consider the story of the prophet Isaiah. And since his friend was Jewish, he thought, okay, well, let's, you know, in the Old Testament, let's, let's talk about it. And Albert Nock remind him the prophet's career begins at the end of King Uzziah's reign, about 740 B.C. And in the year of Uzziah's death, the Lord commissioned the prophet to go out and warn the people of the wrath to come. Now, Albert Nock is paraphrasing, of course, when he says this, but the Lord tells Isaiah, you tell them what a worthless lot they are. Tell them what is wrong and why and what is going to happen unless they have a change of heart and straighten up. Don't mince matters. Make it clear that they are positively down to their last chance. Give it to them good and strong and keep on giving it to them. I suppose I perhaps ought to tell you that it won't do any good. The official class and their intelligentsia will turn up their noses at you and the masses will not even listen. They will all keep on in their own ways until they carry everything down to destruction and you will probably be lucky if you get out with your life. Now, Albert Knox says Isaiah was very willing to take on the job. In fact, he had asked for it, but the prospect put a new face on the situation. It raised the obvious question, why, if all that were so, if the enterprise were to be a failure from the start, why was there any sense in starting it? Ah, the Lord said, you don't get the point. There is a remnant there that you know nothing about. They are obscure, unorganized, inarticulate, each one rubbing along as best he can. They need to be encouraged and braced up 
Because when everything has gone completely to the dogs, they are the ones who will come back and build up a new society. And meanwhile, your preaching will reassure them and keep them hanging on. Your job is to take care of the remnant. So now be off and set about it. And from here, Nock goes into a great explanation of what exactly does he mean by the masses. You know, commonly used, it suggests agglomerations of poor, underprivileged people, laboring people, proletarians, but it means nothing like that. It just means the majority. The mass man, according to Albert Nock, is one who has neither the force of intellect to apprehend the principles issuing in what we know as the humane life, nor the force of character to adhere to those principles steadily and strictly as laws of conduct. And because such people make up the great and overwhelming majority of mankind, they are collectively called the masses. The line of differentiation between the masses and the remnant is invariably set by quality rather than circumstance. The remnant are those people who, by force of intellect, are able to apprehend these principles and by force of character are able, at least measurably, to cleave to them. The masses are those who are unable to do either. All right, I got to dumb this down for myself because I'm a simple guy. But in, instead of just thinking of it in terms of uh, the, the principles, you know, at stake here, let's just use the word truth. The remnant are those who by force of intellect are able to apprehend or at least lay hold of the truth and by force of character to cleave to it, to live it, to make it a part of who they are. The masses, they don't care about the truth. They're, they're focused on far different things. And, and the picture which Isaiah presents of the Judean, Judean masses of his time is really unfavorable. In his view, the mass man, whether he's high or lowly, rich or poor, prince or pauper, gets off very badly. He appears not only weak-minded and weak-willed, but as by consequence, knavish, arrogant, grasping, dissipated, unprincipled, unscrupulous. Oh, and don't you feel smug, mass woman. You get off pretty badly, too, sharing all those same untoward qualities and contributing a few of your own in the way of vanity and laziness and extravagance and foible. But let's talk about the, the remnant. The remnant is what really matters because the remnant are those for whom the truth matters more than anything else. And I'm summarizing this because, you know, this is a pretty, it's, it's not a super long essay. You could knock it out in, in a fairly short amount of time. But if you really want to ponder what's going on, understand that the remnant does not care whether the, the truth is coming to them from, you know, somebody in a three-piece suit or a lab coat or a uniform or anything like that. They are much more concerned with quality. They want to know the truth, even if the truth hurts. Here's how Albert Knox says it. He says, uh, the main problem is uh, with the reaction to the mission itself. If, say, you're a preacher, you wish to attract as large a congregation as you can, which means an appeal to the masses. And this, in turn, means adapting your terms of your message to the order of intellect and character that the masses exhibit. You understand what he's saying there? If you're an educator, say, with a college on your hands, you wish to get as many students as possible, and you whittle down your requirements accordingly. If you're a writer, you want to get as many readers. If a publisher, as many purchasers. If a philosopher, many disciples. If a reformer, many converts. 
if a musician, many auditors, and so forth. But he says, as we see on all sides in the realization of these several desires, the prophetic message is so heavily adulterated with trivialities in every instance that its effect on the masses is just to harden them in their sins. Meanwhile, the remnant, aware of this adulteration and the desires that prompt it, turn their backs on the prophet and will have nothing to do with him or his message because he waters it down for the masses. Now, Isaiah did not have that problem. In fact, he worked under no such disabilities, according to Albert Nock. He preached to the masses only in the sense that he preached publicly, meaning anyone who liked could listen, anyone who liked could just pass on by, but he knew that the remnant would listen. And knowing that nothing was expected of the masses under any circumstances, he made no specific appeal to them. He didn't accommodate his message to their measure in any way. He didn't care two straws whether they heeded it or not. As a modern publisher might put it, he wasn't worrying about circulation or about advertising. Just speaking the truth. So with all such obsessions quite out of the way, he was in a position to do his best without fear and with... Uh, with being answerable only to his boss, the Lord. Think about that when you think about the messages that you consume and the sources from which you get your information. Are they watered down or are they, are they otherwise made to, to appeal to you? Do they, do they appeal to baser instincts? In other words, try to make you angry, try to make you fearful, try to make you proud. I'm better than those people, <laughs> those idiots. Just a little something to think about. Here's the kicker. The masses don't care about the truth. What they care about is whatever is in it for them next. And this is one of the reasons why uh, it's, it's okay to find yourself out of step with the masses. Frankly, in this day and age, if I see somebody out of step with the masses, I'm like, cool, that's a person I can respect. <laughs> Not that I'm disrespecting anybody else, but, you know, someone who's willing to, to not march in lockstep, that's very good. But for, for the prophet Isaiah, all he had to do was speak the truth, give his best, and that was enough for the remnant. And I believe it's the same thing in our day. You don't know who the remnant is. They're quiet. They're unassuming. They don't uh, draw attention to themselves. Why? Because truth matters to them more than accolades. They're people you would probably overlook in most public settings. Why? Because they're not drawing attention to themselves. But they're essential. And I speak to you as though you are part of that remnant. You are essential. Why? Because your attachment to truth is what will enable you to be the kind of person who can help build things back up when it all comes crashing down. And it does from time to time. This is not new. This is not like, oh, that's never happened before in human civilization. It has. So if the truth matters more to you than those feelings of comfort or the feeling of acceptance or the feeling of, well, at least I am on the side of the majority, I can't recommend this essay enough. Albert J. Nock, Isaiah's Job. Yes, it's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Among my many excellent sponsors is a company called Life-Saving Food. And there's a link in the show notes. It's right there each day when I publish the show notes. You'll find links to my sponsors. Click on the one for lifesavingfood.com and just take a look. You know, we're talking about food storage, which the more I look around, the more uncertainty I see in certain directions, the more I think, yeah, this is probably a really good idea, especially when you're talking about food with a 25-year shelf life. That's some peace of mind. You know you're going to use it at some point, and they have different packages of all different sizes for people of different budgetary restraints, as well as people who are just getting started or those who are just, you know, filling in a few gaps in their food storage program. Here's the best part, though. They'll knock 10% off the purchase price if you include HYDE, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code when you go to check out. It's a great company. I strongly recommend them. And, yes, you will sleep better at night knowing you are set for whatever may be coming down the pike. All right, back to the concept of disciples, followers, and cheerleaders. It was a really hard realization for me because uh, for, for all the years that I've been in radio, it's always been, you know, the bigger the audience, the better you're doing. And somewhere along the way, I don't know where, um, something clicked where I started to understand that uh, this is no longer about uh, drawing in the, the most massive audience ever. In fact, if, if you want a mass, you want to appeal to the masses, you got to be more superficial. That's a, I mean, it works. So don't get me wrong. It works. The masses like superficial things. And if you want to draw their attention, you will have their superficial attention for a time. But if you're looking to just simply give your best, whatever that message is, you have to accept the fact it's not for everybody. I like how T.K. Coleman from the Foundation for Economic Education puts it. And he says, it's, it's very simple. Not everybody wants what you have to offer. That's life. But he says, some people desperately need what you have to offer. That's purpose. So if you've been thinking, well, I don't know. I just don't, I don't know if I want to speak up. I don't know if I want to draw attention. Does it matter if anybody's even listening? They're listening. But you have to be okay with the idea that it may be a smaller number of people because that message may not be for everybody. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that the people who don't need it or don't want it are, are stupid or, or evil. They're just not your people, and that's okay. Your people, though, are waiting for you to, to speak up. And you may not even know who those people are. I think this is one of the coolest things that, uh, that I've ever experienced in life is to run into somebody years down the road and learn that uh, something I did or something that, uh, that I said or something that I wrote impacted them in a positive way because it was totally unknown at the time. And it's, and it's not always, you know, just, you know, political musings or, you know, thoughts on whatever the current events are. Case in point, uh, I, there, was a, there was a young lady I worked with many, many years ago, early in my radio career. She was the receptionist at, at our station. And when I would show up for work, I was working nights, so I'd show up about 4.30 in the afternoon, go on the air at 5, and, you know, it was, 
She was there, and I'd sit and visit with her for a few minutes while I waited my turn to get in the studio. And time went on. She moved away, or she she went her way. You know, there's, there's a fair amount of turnover. And uh, years later... I got a message that uh, this this young woman had uh, made a decision to to join the church that I belong to, and she had asked if I would you know participate in um, that uh, that ceremony you know that uh, that acknowledged you know her joining the church. And I was very shocked to find out that one of the reasons why she had made that decision was based on the conversations that she and I had had when I was just killing time waiting to get in the studio. Now, I, that was, I did not go to work with the intent of, you know, today I'm going to go do missionary work. I, I had no idea. In fact, honestly, I can't remember what we ever talked about. But apparently what we talked about um, at some point involved me sharing with her, you know, this, this is stuff that has made a real difference in my life. I don't remember ever doing this, but she said that I never forgot those conversations that we had. And so, you know, when it came time to, to reach this crossroads in my life, I felt like I could proceed because, you know, of what you and I had talked about. And I just went, wow. And it got me wondering, you know, okay, so how many times has that gone wrong? Have <laughs> I ever done something that's going to keep somebody, you know, from the truth? Now, that may be in a religious sense, but I want you to know this applies in other areas as well. And if you have the sense that uh, you need to be counted, that you need to stand up and be counted, whatever that is. I don't know what it is that drives your heart and that uh, that drives, you know, the things that are most important to you, but you do. And for some people, it may be, you know, I am all about holistic health. I'm all about herbs or I'm all about, you know, eating a properly balanced diet or essential oils or whatever it is. I know people scoff. Oh, yeah, right. You know, like there's any scientific. That's okay. Again, if, if somebody scoffs, they're just not your people, and that's, that's just fine. But if you feel that call that you need to stand up and be counted, this is probably the time to take it seriously. I know a lot of people are questioning things because they see the, the growing, uh, I want to use the word chaos, but that sounds a little maybe overstated. They, they see the growing unrest and, and unease around us. I mean, it's, it's a pretty weird time, right? When people actively cheer the idea that, all right, New York school district has, you know, the New York city school district has just mandated that all teachers will be vaccinated or they won't work for the district. They can't persuade somebody. You just force them. And people cheer that as good, good. It's about time. Somebody did this. Yeah, we're, we're in a very unhealthy place as a society. And I think all of us are feeling the strain of it. I can't think of anybody I know, no matter how well adjusted, who, who doesn't feel like, wow, there's a real sense that, uh, that things are kind of careening out of control. Well, there's something to be said for moving forward with purpose. And what I'm going to suggest won't, makes sense to everybody, but if you're one of those people who has that sense, that little nagging voice in the back of your mind that says, you should be doing more, or there's more that you could do, because you understand, you know, there's there's right and there's wrong, and you want to stand for what you believe is right, 
I'm going to encourage you to act on that. Even though it's scary, even though it will draw attention that that may be less than supportive, that's a diplomatic way of saying you're going to get hounded. <laughs> you're gonna you you may even awake the the ire of the cancel culture folks. Do it. Do it anyway, knowing that there's purpose in that, and there's something to be said about moving forward with purpose. It takes away a lot of the fear and and. The most important part, though, is you'll see at some point that it does have impact, and I mean the right kind of impact, on the people who need whatever it is you have to offer. Years ago, I took a hike in Dark Canyon down in southeastern Utah. Very remote, very hot. We were doing this in August, and it was just brutal. And all that week, and and I had worn boots that unfortunately were much too small, and so by the end of the week, My feet were killing me. And our very last night there in the canyon, we had just set up camp, and I'm relaxing. I'm off my feet going, oh, my goodness, I I can barely walk another step. And suddenly we get a flash flood warning over one of the uh, hike leader's uh, radios. And we had to tear down our camp, and we had to be out of that canyon in 30 minutes. And it's a nice, steep climb up out of that canyon. And I remember thinking, this is going to kill me, because <laughs> there were times I really thought I was going to die that week. It was so hot, and it was so strenuous. But when there was purpose behind what I was doing, you know what? I still found the way to make my feet move and to move with purpose. The, the only difference here is, if you're serious about finding whatever purpose you need to be moving boldly forward with, your best bet, assuming that you're a believer, is to hit your knees, take it to God, and ask, what should I be doing? And ask with the understanding that uh, you will get an answer. And it will probably scare you. In fact, that's one of the ways you'll know it's uh, it's an answer. Is You'll be like, really? <laughs> and feel a little bit scared. Do it anyway. The world needs your influence. The remnant needs your influence. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, as well as LifesavingFood.com. And I thoughtfully put together a nice little uh, collection of those sponsors with links in the show notes. At thebrianhideshow.com, which you can think of as kind of a nice resource for wrong thinkers. It's also a great resource for uh, other talk radio personalities who are too lazy to do their own show prep. (laughs) I'm only laughing because that used to be me reading Neil Bortz's show notes. Hey, that's good. I'm going to use that in my show. So I always uh, always have uh, links to the articles, links to the guests that I visit with. But uh, there's some great reading material for those who are willing to go beyond just the the little scratch of the surface that we're doing here 
and do a deeper dive into understanding what we talk about. And in this hour, I want to talk a little bit about how the dominant narratives that are being fed to us on a daily basis by corporate media are starting to break down. And that's actually an encouraging thing. In fact, that's, there's a couple of encouraging things I want to talk about here, that being one of them. James Howard Kunstler has a great article called Throwdowns and Showdowns. Kind of a nice zoomed out to 20,000 foot uh, view of, of some of the things that are going on. So here's his take. He says, notice there are two sets of hostages in this phase of what looks like an engineered U.S. collapse. Thousands of stranded Americans who can't get out of Afghanistan thanks to the history-rocking ineptitude of Joe Biden, Tony Blinken, and General Mark Milley. And the millions of we-the-people back home whose minds are hostage to the narratives concocted in a shadow land of sinister governance. Welcome to a week of throwdowns and showdowns, a force majeure of mind change. Now, he says the strange paralysis in the Pentagon has prevented the use of U.S. power to clear an escape corridor to Kabul's airport and establish order in the facility. This after the tactically mystifying decision to abandon the U.S. Bagram military airfield, a good 20 miles outside of festering Kabul and surrounded by a more easily securable empty desert. Britain and France managed to get their nationals out last week only to be rebuked by American brass for making us look bad. Well, that helped, I'm sure. But he says, and then how long can the stranded Americans even stay hidden and alive? They have to eat. Either they come out of their hidey holes and get to some market, or they would theoretically have to send some Afghani servants to fetch them supplies. But what Afghani in his right mind would want to be caught in service to the Americans by the Taliban? That quandary must have a pretty short time horizon on it, standing by to see how it works out. Next, in this week's throwdown parade is the FDA's imminent approval of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, which, by the way, it did happen yesterday, without any of the usual extensive trials. James Howard Kunstler says, how does that even happen? With an efficacy rate of 39% maximum and a runaway train of vicious side effects ranging from brain and heart damage to infertility. The so-called mRNA vaccines are also implicated in the ongoing mutation of the disease, producing a cavalcade of variants. And he asks, is that perhaps on purpose? To keep the pandemic going, preventing it from burning out? He says, COVID-19 is an expedient device for exercising the most severe control over the daily life of Americans. And it's being used liberally once again in the blue cities to make ordinary business as difficult as possible, even unto shut down and ruin. FDA approval will further enable the mandatory vaccination of school children, government workers, and corporate employees. About half the country still refuses to get jabbed. And you're about to see them go hardcore when the FDA makes its move. He says the shadow cabal behind Joe Biden will, accordingly, destroy what is left of public education as millions of parents withdraw their students from the system. You'll then see the rapid assembly of homeschooling networks that aggregate informally into small, private academies, and of course the biggest losers will be the minorities who lack the cultural mojo to homeschool. Well done, Joe Biden and the FDA. Hey, while you're at it, why not destroy higher ed too? That sound you hear is plywood getting nailed up on the windows of countless insolvent small colleges. He says the school result will be one of one part of a greater uproar against the confabulated hysteria of COVID-19. 
Throwdown will lead to showdown as the alienation of we the people from a tyrannical rogue government bangs the crisis gong. Next up, the release of the Arizona election audit's preliminary findings. Rumor is that they show the grossest possible and possibly criminal and probably criminal mismanagement of the balloting, pointing to a conclusion that Joe Biden did not win that state's election. Additional rumor has it that the ballots carried hidden, traceable serial numbers or something like that, showing conclusively how the paper vote was rigged. Rachel Maddow's nightmare, they have the ballots, comes true. It's a wake-up call for the woked-up. And he says, as predicted here, John Durham is back in the news. The captive news media, that is, the mainstream orgs owned by the intel community, put out stories last week that the Russiagate special prosecutor has actually made some trips to the grand jury. Now, that implies some kind of criminal prosecution. The spin was that he only netted a few small fry characters, mostly outside the government, such as Igor Danchenko of the Brookings Institution, said to be the chief source for Christopher Steele's nefarious dossier. But he says, don't believe it. Durham is going for the sharks and whales. Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, John Brennan, Bruce and and Nellie Orr, and really... How can James Comey be excluded from that gang since he was running it? So here's the bottom line. This week marks the beginning of the deep state's hard time. Its narratives are shredding. Its mind control creatures are slip sliding away. Half the country has been onto their game for years, and the other half is about to feel their heads explode as a corrective reality elbows into the scene. That is the real and only reality, not the one confabulated backstage for you by skulking quizlings. See how you've been played? They've taken your country. Maybe you should start caring about that. That's pretty strong words, right? I don't think he's wrong. I think he's actually right on the money. And I'm glad, glad to see him speaking up like this. Now, I'm going to encourage you, if you want to stay you know, frustrated, focus all of your attention on that without ceasing. Actually, I don't recommend that. If you, want to, if you want to have a normal life, definitely pay attention. This is one of the reasons I like James Howard Kunstler, because he's able to concisely put a lot of information into a fairly small amount of space. And you can look it over. If there's something that interests you, pursue that further. Just don't forget that there's, there's other good stuff going on as well. Hey, speaking of good stuff, just saw the most recent article from Thomas L. Knapp from the uh, William Lloyd Garrison Center. And this one is titled, It Looks Like Americans Are Starting to Ignore Mask Mandates. That's good. He says, we're still hearing a lot about mask mandates in the COVID-19 era, America. But he says, my experiences and those of acquaintances over the last few days suggest that the supposed mandates have functionally become mere advisories. And Thomas L. Knapp says, in my opinion, that's a good thing. Generally speaking, we're all better off when personal health decisions are left to individuals than when government presumes to make those decisions for everyone. Many Americans begin voluntarily donning masks when public health authorities were still yelling at us not to and drastically reducing our outings and interactions before government started trying to put us all, well, all of us toffs who could stay at home and watch Netflix while essential peons delivered our groceries under house arrest. Policy is a trailing, not leading indicator. So he has a few different anecdotes where he says, look, these are these are places where I've I've seen uh, people saying that, uh, you know, they're they're just not going to go along with it. 
One of the most encouraging is New Mexico blogger Kent McManigal, who notes uh, at Hooligan Libertarian that although the state's government has reimposed its previous mask mandate, and believe me, they are very, very serious in New Mexico, only about uh, about 25% of shoppers do seem to be ignoring it. And this is the good news. The stores aren't hassling those shoppers about it. So maybe, just maybe the spell is starting to break. Look, I'll admit, when I went to church this week, I was, uh, I was actually kind of nervous because I didn't know for sure what I was going to find in terms of, you know, would, would, I, would I find everybody masked up and would I be the odd man out because I just, I don't wear masks. I just don't do it. And I'm happy to tell you that uh, when I stepped into uh, my congregation on Sunday, maybe 10% of the people were wearing masks. And the, the rest of them were just going about their lives. I mean, there was, there, was, there was no open kissing. Nobody wiped their nose and then shook hands with that hand. Nope. Lots of common sense. But I was very grateful to see that uh, normalcy, like it or not, seems to be returning. And that's a good thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick word about lifesavingfood.com. You know that self-reliance is important. And maybe you're getting the inkling that uh, self-reliance may be more important than ever. I mean, look at the look at the lengths to which uh, certain government agencies, advocacy groups, big tech, and uh, big corporations are going to uh, to pressure people into doing the right thing and and getting that to COVID vaccination. I mean, it's it's very open. You know, well, we'll just cut you off from being able to shop, or we'll just cut you off from being able to work. Can you see where it might make sense to have the necessary supplies on hand that if you had to, you could tough it out on your own? Or you could at least refuse those offers of help. Hey, we're just here to help you. Don't you want to take this uh, carrot? Come on, they're dangling the carrot in front of you. Go to lifesavingfood.com. Check out the different food storage packages they have. If you want to get a whole package for the family, you could do that. If you just need to add a few pieces here and there to fill in some gaps in your own food storage plan, you can do that as well. Don't forget to use my last name, H-Y-D-E, HYDE, as your coupon code to save 10% on your purchase. So this injection resistance, now that uh, the FDA has fully approved the Pfizer vaccine, I suspect we're going to see uh, a doubling down on this uh, what we can't persuade people to do, we're going to have to force them to do kind of thing. Even the president's getting really forceful. Just get the shot. Just do it. You know, it's <laughs> he starts using profanity. We're going to know he's serious or senile, one or the other. But I saw the most interesting article from Michael Tracy, injection class. I'm sorry, injection resistance is a class thing. 
In fact, he describes it as kind of an F.U. from the people who sell their labor, not their soul. He says, it's not often that I feel compelled to share a full reader email. I get lots of emails, and let's just say the quality can vary. But he says, here's an extremely high-quality email that's worth reproducing. And it comes in response to an article he wrote last week about the media's unshakable obsession with partisanship in relation to the phenomenon of vaccine hesitancy. Glance at most popular coverage of the issue, and you'd come away thinking, well, Republican voting inclination is the only relevant variable in why millions of Americans are hesitant to take COVID vaccines. He says, I don't know about you, but my hunch when examining vaccine uptake data from around the country has long been that socioeconomic status, or to put more simply, class, is a highly salient factor, perhaps even dwarfing partisanship. And while race also does get mentioned a fair amount among racial groups, blacks have the lowest predilection to get vaccinated. Whatever racial disparities exist could more easily be a function of socioeconomic status than any intrinsically racial factor. His point is that the issues of class tend to be less exciting than the race and partisanship for the media to bicker amongst themselves about, though. So it's unsurprising this would be mostly glossed over. And it should go without saying that the vast majority of people who work in the media, nonprofit, activism, complex, come from a very distinct socioeconomic stratum. Hence, why they often miss trends that derive from lower-class sensibilities with which they're unfamiliar and seldom ever encounter. Here's what the email said. Hey, Michael, wanted to write to you to share an observation. It could well make for a worthwhile story should you choose to pursue it, or maybe it's something you could file in your mental knowledge Rolodex for future use. Or maybe it's useless and I'm wasting my time. If nothing else, I get to put my thoughts on paper. I am what is called a, this is redacted, for a Fortune 500 company working in supply chain domain. This includes manufacturing, logistics, and distribution. If you share any of this information, please do not share my job title, name, or company. My job is to work with high-level company executives to understand their overall corporate strategy. Now, we're talking 300000 plus annual salary types, then with low-level distribution center and factory workers, 12 to $15 an hour types, to understand their day-to-day jobs and then deliver complex multidimensional technology solutions that execute on those strategic goals while making life easier for floor workers. In other words, I really cut across income levels every day. I also make a point of presenting an unassuming persona that has much to learn and is highly curious. This generally signals to the majority of people I work with that they can both A, impart their knowledge willingly to me, and B, more importantly, speak candidly. In order to know what I need to know, what what I need to deliver in a technology solution, I must understand the needs of the affected parties up and down the corporate ladder. This method of communication has proven effective in getting people to open up about what's important to them, what's challenging in their day-to-day jobs, and what they think would make the operation better. Now, he says, as a result, I believe, perhaps arrogantly, I'm uniquely positioned to make observations about both groups of people. He's had C-suite executives open up to him about booze and weed-fueled nights of scandalous behavior on work trips, and hourly laborers open up to him about dying relatives and 9-11 conspiracy theories. And he takes pride in listening to them and not betraying their trust. But he says, I have noticed with absolute clarity a stark divide in vaccination behavior. I hop around between my home in whatever city to our facilities in the South, Midwest, and on the West Coast. And I can tell you at each site, the picture is the exact same. 
My company has a program where you can shed the standard COVID protocols if you provide the company with proof of vaccination. Well, he says, without fail, corporate management and executives are vaccinated at near 100% rates. Likewise, without fail, hourly laborers who are almost all white in the Midwest, almost all black in the South, and all mixed up on the West Coast are vaccinated between 5 and 15%. And vaccinations are concentrated almost entirely in the old folks. Now, he says, I've heard this over and over, that this is a political phenomenon. Vaccine hesitancy is a problem of white Republicans, of course. But he says, in reality, I don't think it has anything to do with race or political alignment and everything to do with social class. He says, I read somewhere a tweet from someone who seemed insightful, who said that the centers of power in this country have so heavily relied on propaganda and psyops that the hierarchies that run these centers of power have themselves begun to select for people that are most likely to buy into the propaganda. As a result, you don't have an evil ruling class, just a delusional one that has entirely bought into its own narrative. The people who do not move up the ladder, though they may be competent and capable, are restricted by the fact that they don't buy the narrative. He says, if that's true, I think it makes absolute sense. The people who are most likely to be company men, the people whose entire lives are defined by their status in a Fortune 500 organization, who are the most married to the corporate narrative and who are the most likely to be absent critical thought, are the ones who are almost universally vaccinated. The people who do not live in that world are almost universally not. Now, the email writer says, I've not seen one person break it down this way. I bet if you spent a week or two digging into the research on this, you'd see just how true it was in all the numbers available to you. And the author here, Michael Tracy, says, hey, you know, what I like about this email is it cuts through all the typical narrative gamesmanship and it lands on something spurred by this person's direct personal experience that's been largely unremarked upon in the whole vaccine hesitancy debate. If getting the vaccine burnishes your place within a corporate hierarchy or some other institutional hierarchy of which you are a part then of course you're going to be more likely to get the vaccine. But if you have essentially no hope of ascending a corporate institutional hierarchy and little investment in your corporate structure at all, because you ultimately experience it as a menial job to make ends meet, then of course you're going to be less likely to get the vaccine. It makes total sense. Thus, vaccine hesitancy would seem to coordinate with the strength of one's institutional attachments. There's more to this article, and I'll have it included in the show notes. <clears throat> I strongly recommend you take a look at it by going to the com and just checking out today's show notes. This is for August 24th. Isn't that something? Challenging the narrative really should be second nature for all of us. Not just because, you know, of COVID or because of vaccines, but because if you want to remain tethered to reality, you've got to be willing to challenge the narrative. But as most people are aware, it can also lead to some uncomfortable truth. So you got to be okay with, you know, a little bit of discomfort. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
All right, welcome back to the show. I am pleased once again to catch up with my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, I trust you're in good health, mentally and physically? Amazingly so, yeah. And mea culpa for uh, the phone snafu. I was trying to avoid telemarketers. Oh, no problem. Hey, you know, nobody is going to fault you for avoiding telemarketers. <laughs> so every That's time, one of life's small annoyances. Every time I think it can't get weirder, things, yeah. things get weirder. And I don't even know yep. where, where to start here. I, I will say, uh, you mentioned something before we, we jumped on here, and that is uh, um, Trump speaking in Alabama this weekend. Mm-hmm. Very enthusiastic crowd right up until the moment he told him to get vaccinated. And then yep. what was all that booing about? Well, exactly. What was all that booing about? People have, people have had enough of it. And it, may, it has made me very, very wary and suspicious of what the orange man is all about. I lost faith, faith with the orange man uh, before the uh, election, actually, over his standing there like a spray tan cinnamon wooden Indian next to Fauci for all those months and uh, doing very little, if anything, to prevent the weaponization of hypochondria, which is why we're in this mess that we're in. And now he's out there giving talks and continuing to push this vaccine, this vaccine, which has, what, a 39 percent efficacy record, I think, is the current number that uh, the government has now approved, the same government that's, that's just desperately frantic to force everybody to be injected with this vaccine, this vaccine that clearly does not work. And not only that, uh, does the opposite of working. It makes people ill. It makes people more ill than they were before. It's, it's insanity. It's I I am I'm more than just a little bit apprehensive because Pfizer yesterday their their vaccine was fully approved by the FDA. Mm-hmm. I can only assume that this means that the um, the people who've decided we can't persuade you, so now we got to force you, are going to be doubling mm-hmm. down now that it's approved. Sure, sure, because one of the uh, hinges of resistance uh, for a lot of people was that this was considered an experimental medicine, not approved by the government. But people should understand that uh, the uh, the safety trials that have been performed to anoint it with FDA approval were performed by the same vaccine companies that make the vaccines. You know, any conflict of interest there potentially? There have been no long-term uh, valid studies of the effectiveness of these vaccines, much less the long-term consequences of this vaccine. But we we know because it's indisputable. That the that the that the vaccine does not work in Israel. The, the cases the cases are exploding among a population that's more than 90 percent vaccinated. So that clearly tells you these things don't work. And then on the other end of the scale, we've got the uh, the horror stories about people developing Bell's palsy, uh, people dying, uh, all sorts of horrific and apparently permanent side effects resulting from these vaccines. So why in the world would the government approve such a thing? They pulled the swine flu vaccine off the market back in the 70s when 50 people died. Wow. Yeah, I have to wonder why it's so different this time. This, this uh, Apparently, this is like 9-11. It ripped a hole in the time-space continuum. Yeah. and So every, yep. all bets are off, but, but I can't for the life of me figure out why. Well, I've, I, I have um, come across what I think is a persuasive reason. I think that they are desperate to prevent a control group from remaining, meaning people who have not been vaccinated, people who haven't bought into all of the sickness psychosis, uh, who remain healthy and who, for that reason, uh, stand in stark contrast to the people who are getting sick, who are practicing all the kabuki, including the vaccination. They can't have that. So what they want is to get uh, the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated to hide 
the fiasco because that way if everybody's sick then they can just say oh it's a virus it's the virus we just see if we, we, we're having such trouble corralling this virus here have another shot have a third booster have a fourth booster but it, it, it gives the lie to the whole thing if 40 or 50 percent of the population that doesn't get needled remains perfectly healthy just like uh, you know months ago when people were walking around with the uh, the mask as you and I have talked about and not getting sick it, it kind of let people see, literally, look, that person isn't wearing a mask. They're fine. They're not getting sick. Hmm, maybe wearing these masks doesn't serve any purpose. Yeah, there, there's something to be said, too, for, for the idea that, look, no one is opposed to physical health or to medicines that actually help cure or prevent sickness. Nobody. Sure. But there's also um, a decided lack of trust in the organization that's pushing this the hardest, namely the federal government. And and to me, if, if somebody wants to get the vaccine, I think that's their prerogative. And I'm, I'm not going to try of to course. tell them, oh, don't do that. But the fact that it's being forced so hard, um, you pointed this out in, in an article. Suspicious. Well, you, you wrote about yeah. how it's the precedent that's established. If we can if yeah. we can set aside this respect for your bodily autonomy in this case, mm-hmm. what's to stop us from setting it aside mm-hmm. when, when it becomes convenient in an emergency? Of course. Of course. Well, let's, let's, let's step back a minute and note that there's no mandate or pressure for people to take aspirin when they have a headache, right? True, true. People take aspirin because they know that there's virtually no risk to taking aspirin, you know, unless you're somebody who, let's say, has a, a bleeding issue if you're, um, 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 well, I forgot what the name of the disease is, hemophilia. Uh, a handful of people uh, potentially can, can have a problem from taking aspirin, but for the most part, there's practically no risk and there's lots of benefits. You have a headache, you know, you've got some joint pain, pop a couple of aspirins, great. You know, nobody has a, nobody has a problem with that. Uh, nobody, uh, it, so it ought to raise questions when they're trying to really aggressively force you, and you've got to do it right now, right now. I've remarked before, it's like this, the practices of a, an aggressive used car salesman or a timeshare salesman who's trying to con you, who's trying to separate you from your money, only in this case they're trying to separate you from your health. And, and not just that, now we'll get into this thing that you were mentioning, if they can set the precedent that they can force you to take this vaccine, then they have established the precedent for making you take other vaccines. And all of a sudden, your general health becomes a matter of public concern. Why not force people to go in for annual physicals, for example? And if you chafe, if you say no, if you uh, decide that you disagree with what the doctor tells you, now you've got a doctor with a gun, a doctor who's empowered to force you to do what he says. And if you don't do what he says... This becomes either a criminal offense or, perhaps as they did in the old Soviet Union, they'll pathologize it. And they say that if you question whatever the doctor, the expert says, then you must be mentally ill. And you have to be put away somewhere for your own good so that we can keep you safe. That's where this is headed, and people really ought to think about that. Well, if government had not become so involved in the vaccination effort, there would probably be a lot less vaccine-hesitant people, myself included. But because no government got involved, it became politicized. And when things become politicized, then it all becomes about how can we force you to do what we're telling you to do? Of course. Uh, another aspect of this, too, is that the, 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 the dominant risk factor for this sickness is obesity. And that's a fact. That's acknowledged science. Uh, if you're greatly overweight, if you're morbidly obese, you're the kind of person who's likely to get sick and you're likely to get seriously sick if you get the sickness. And that's also true for other sicknesses. But we don't have a campaign against obesity. We don't have public service announcements telling people, look, stop eating so much. Maybe eat better food. Maybe drop some weight. 
that would be a great way to increase people's health and reduce their vulnerability, but we're not allowed to talk about that. Somehow that's fat shaming, you know, that's mean-spirited. But other people who are healthy and who are not at any kind of risk at all, really, from this meaningfully, like children, for example, and people who are 25 and younger, who are, I think the figure is 0.025% infection fatality rate for people in that age group, uh, they're told that they have to put on a mask. They're told they have to roll up their sleeve and be injected with this this vaccine that that could kill them, that could render them infertile, that could give them Bell's palsy and all sorts of other horrible, life-altering, permanent afflictions. It's it's outrageous. I'm with you. I, I somebody I think it was Tom Cranawitter likened the uh, the government as Lucy holding the football. You know, for Charlie yep. Brown <laughs> until next. Come on, I promise. Yeah, it's going to be just fine if you just come up here and and get the shot. And uh, you know, we we have a pretty long track record of knowing what happens every time the Charlie Brown goes yeah, to kick that football. And by the way, football. we I want to mention. I don't know whether you caught this, but the FDA is actually looking into. I think it's the Pfizer thing, uh, Pfizer jab, and uh, the correlation with myocarditis, uh, heart inflammation. And blood clotting. And you know, if they're admitting that publicly, that they're looking into that, that the problem is enormous and the pressure is enormous for them to look into it. The cat's out of the bag. People are aware uh, of these problems. They're also aware because of a number of high profile cases. For example, Jesse Jackson and his wife are now in the hospital with the Rona despite having been vaccinated. So, again, you know, just connect the dots, use logic. What in the world? Why would you take a medicine that doesn't work that could potentially cause enormous problems for you? No, an, an excellent point. And, you know, it's it's sad because the, the mandates uh, from workers, President Biden is called, I'm sorry, from work, from from uh, from companies, the, the president is encouraging, you know, corporations, make your employees get it, you know, in, He's in requirement. Them. He's not encouraging. Let's use straight language. He's threatening them. This is all about threats. It's not, oh, we recommend that you consider it's you will do this or else. Yeah, And because this is all about control and domination, that's what this is all about ultimately. It has nothing to do with health. It's about establishing, establishing a regime under which all of us are uh, beholden to these medical experts and required to submit to whatever their diktats are. And you know these diktats can be used to control and micromanage literally every aspect of our lives. Hold that thought. We're going to be back in just a moment. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And uh, Eric... I, I'm grateful that I get a chance to to, to bend your ear a little bit each week about, uh, you know, the ongoing uh, COVID crisis. But I also love the fact that if for some reason I need a break from that, I can always count on you to give me great automotive, um, not only advice, but also experiences. Our discussion on the uh, uh, Charger Hellcat Red Eye a couple of weeks ago was, was nothing short of inspiring. I want to talk insurance and extended warranties. You mentioned uh, earlier uh, you keep your phone unplugged sometimes so you don't have to be hounded about extended warranties. Talk to me about this recent column that you published. A column by way of analogy comparing uh, health insurance specifically with these extended warranties that are hard sold to people in the same manner that health insurance is sold to people. And really fundamentally what both are selling you is fear. 
They want you to be terrified that something bad is going to happen unless you pay them a lot of money. And, of course, uh, the fact of the matter is they've done a lot of calculation to determine exactly what the likelihood is that they'll ever have to pay you a penny uh, as opposed to how much you're going to pay them. And by and large, if you practice due diligence, whether it's with health insurance or, or with extended warranties, the last thing that you should invest in is an insurance policy. Far better off to invest in due diligence and put aside some money for the extraordinarily unlikely event that something's going to happen that would cost you more than what the warranty or the health insurance policy is going to cost you. Interesting. We're, we're pretty easy to manipulate. I hate to say that, but as a species, human beings are pretty, pretty easy to pull the strings on. Well, we are now. We didn't used to be. That's my perception of it at any rate. I think for several generations now, fear, constant peddling of, of danger has been the order of the day. You and I are old enough to remember a world where you could turn on the news and it wasn't one hysterical screaming, oh my God, the world is going to end story after the next. It was just, oh, well, today there was a bill in Congress and you know there was a parade in town and uh, the star of this TV show did this or that. And it was calm. The world was calm. It wasn't a constant crisis from day to day to day, but it has been now, particularly since 9-11, as the chimp, as I style him, likes to put it. Um, and so people are, are in this state of para paralytic fear about everything. So now it is very easy to hook them and bait them into buying things they don't need on the basis of crisis. And, oh, my gosh, if you don't do this, you're going to die. You're going you're gonna to end up without, uh, without any money because you're going to be bankrupted by the hospital bills or your car is going to break and all this other nonsense. Wow. So what do you recommend a person do to maintain a healthy perspective? Well, with regard to cars, it's pretty simple. Do a little due diligence. And what I mean by that is if you're contemplating buying a car, look into whether that particular car has a good track record. Uh, is it considered to be a generally reliable car? Has it had recalls? Um, are people complaining about it online? Has it got any weak points? If it does, stay away from that car. Don't buy that car. Buy a car that's, that's known to be reliable and solid. If you're buying a used car, same principle, but also in addition to that, uh, check into its service history and have it looked at by a mechanic who's competent to determine whether the thing has any problems, and then just take care of it. And then if you do those things, the odds of some major problem happening, like the engine falling out on the road, uh, are slim to none. And rather than pay for some extended warranty with lots of asterisks and clauses, caveats and fine print, just put aside a little money every month for a just-in-case fund, um, and that way if something does happen, hey, I've got the money. And if something doesn't happen, which is more likely than not, you've got your money instead of having given it to this shady extended warranty company. I don't know. What you're describing sounds a lot like self-reliance, and nothing terrifies <laughs> people in charge like self-reliant people. Well, let me give you an anecdote. When I was in my young 20s and got my first salary job as an editorial writer at the Washington Times, the option to buy health insurance, which at that time you still had the option to buy, right? And I thought about it and thought, I'm a young single guy. I'm in good health. I have no chronic problems. Uh, the likelihood of me needing any health care is slim to none. So no, I'm, thank you, no, I'm not going to have you deduct, I think it was $250 a month out of my paycheck every month to pay for this insurance that I don't need or want. And rather than that, I put that money aside and used it to buy my first house. And because I was able to do that, uh, I was able to move along in life, and now I own my house, my, my current house. And I think today a lot of people who are in their 20s are having a really difficult time even moving out of their parents' house because they're crushed under this debt load of having to pay for things they don't need 
like health insurance. When you're in your 20s, you don't need that. It's crazy. No, it's a, it's a good point. And I guess, uh, I don't know if it's just laziness or convenience or if it's just the fear that blinds us to whatever other alternatives we might have. Well, it's fear and it's social pressure. When I tell people, you know, I don't have health insurance, they're like, what? Oh, my God, aren't you, aren't you scared? I think, why would I be scared? You know, I take very good care of myself. I'm very careful about the food that I eat. Uh, I exercise fairly fanatically. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with me. And, you know, since I haven't been spending thousands of dollars every year to these insurance shysters, I've got the money in case I break a leg. I can, I can cut a check for it. And sure, it's possible I could have a heart attack. And sure, it's possible uh, I could have cancer. And, yeah, it's possible that the orange man could be reinstated as president next month. Every, anything is possible. But I do not live my life based on exaggerated fears. I make rational calculations of risk and reward and act accordingly. And I think that's what a rational and prudent human being ought to do. Boy, that, uh, that pretty well summarizes the shift in how people go about life. Um, we have people today who are terrified of actually living. And so they, yes. they, they give up everything just because, well, this way I can avoid, you know, the possibility, a remote possibility of something bad happening. And, and they call that life. Yeah, and there's another element to it that's worse. I, you know, I feel bad for people like that who are hobbled by fear and terrified of, of acting and, and taking the initiative in life because it's so limiting. It prevents them from living, as you say, and from, uh, from going out there and, and exploring and, and, and confronting challenges and surmounting them. That's bad enough. That's a tragic thing. But what has happened lately is that's metastasized, and it's not enough that these people are risk-averse themselves. They want us to practice their risk aversion and be forced to do as they do because they are scared we must be scared this manifests in the masking they're terrified that they're going to catch a bug so i have to wear a mask because of their fear and that's intolerable i won't have that you know that's where i've 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 drawn my line in the sand i refuse to be bound by the uh the fears of other people hold me accountable for what i do if i do something that causes harm i will happily be held accountable for that but keep your fear in your pants and keep it to yourself. That's your problem, not my problem. Here, here. You know, I think uh, I think of the person on Twitter last week who was saying, "Everybody, please take your multivitamins so mine will work." <laughs> <laughs> yes, I saw that. That was hysterically funny. Well, I, I appreciate everything that you're doing to help people. You know, keep their sanity in a time where mm-hmm. basically the people who are trying to remain sane, the people who are trying to remain tethered to reality are treated as, you know, lunatics, shunned. Yeah, and we can't permit that. Uh, You know, I I like to think of myself as as a patient and kind person, an empathetic person, Uh, but I will not tolerate being being maneuvered into feeling guilty about something that I have no reason to feel guilty about. I will not be shamed. Um, I'm sorry that other people are afraid. I know that their fear is legitimate. That doesn't make their fear binding on me or you or anybody else. And I think that is where we all need to stand up and say, no, enough. You know, I'm sorry that you're scared, but you're going to have to figure out how to deal with your fear and stop trying to force everybody to live their lives according to what you're scared of. Absolutely. Eric, let's take the minute or so that we have left here. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your website. For people who are Mm -hmm. getting acquainted with Eric Peters for the first time, what will they find at uh, epautos.com? Well, it's kind of an eclectic thing. Uh, I started out just writing about cars, 
but of course now we write about uh, philosophical and political topics as well. You'll find things about new vehicles, old vehicles, motorcycles, which are a passion of mine, new and old, uh, how-to, uh, helpful tips, that kind of thing. Almost anything, frankly, under the sun um, that I can think of that's of interest to people, you'll find there. And we also have uh, a body of very bright, um, very articulate people who post comments on their own and for whom I'm, um, I feel a great debt of gratitude and respect because they really add a lot of value to what goes on there. Okay, and I, I would encourage people read the comments, too. Eric's got a, a very faithful readership and some really smart people, and I always feel a little bit wiser for having read what uh, they contribute. Too. I do, too, and I encourage anybody listening to this who'd like to join in to do so, unlike a lot of these other websites, I will not monetize your information. Uh, you can post anonymously. There's no suppression of speech. As long as you're not profane and abusive, you can let fly with whatever you feel like letting fly with on my site. Okay, I'm including a link to Eric's webpage in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Eric Peters, thank you so much for being my guest once again. Likewise, Brian. Look forward to our next one. All right, we'll talk again soon. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Please do yourself a favor. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Maybe give a little love to my sponsors. Drop them a note. Tell them their message is reaching your ears. Let's get back together tomorrow and do this again. This is The Brian Hyde Show.